Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Week in Politics from the Byline Times. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. We're going to be talking this week about the NHS, Joe Biden and the classified documents. Sounds like a good name for a punk rock band, doesn't it? And more. Our guest this time, Adam Bienkoff, our Byline Times political editor, and joining us from across the pond, Heidi Kuda from the Radicalised Pod. And you can read much more from Adam and Heidi on our newest platform, bylinesupplement.com. That's our substack, which has great additional content. So check it out at bylinesupplement.com. Now, if you read the latest posts at bylinesupplement.com, you'll see details of a poll which reveals that the majority of British people believe the Conservatives want to sell off the NHS and an edition of this podcast, which delves into the crisis of the health service. And Adam Bienkoff, I'm just thinking this is not really ground on which the Conservatives would really want to fight a battle, is it? No, this is a really dangerous ground for the Conservative Party. They've they've tried, and the Conservative government, they tried this week to get on the front foot with bringing some new legislation on the strikes. But opinion polls so far suggest there isn't a huge amount of public trust in, in what the government is doing and what they intend to do our poll today suggesting that despite Rishi Sunak coming out this week and saying that he's committed to the a universal health care free NHS at the point of point of use a majority of voters don't believe him uh, 61% of all voters believe the conservatives would like to introduce new charges for certain NHS services and 51% believe they wish to entirely privatize the service and this is coming at a time when a number of conservative politicians and conservative supporting publications have been coming out with comments suggesting that the current model of the NHS needs to be abandoned, partly because of the crisis we're currently seeing in the service. The former Conservative Chancellor Ken Clark this week suggested there should be charges for patients to use GPs. Asked about this this week, the Prime Minister spokesman didn't completely rule it out. He said that he was not aware of any current plans to introduce charges. But of course, we do know that over the summer when Rishi Sunak was running for the Conservative Party leadership, it was a, an issue that he did raise at the time, which was introducing charges for people who missed GP appointments. So that would kind of breach that principle of, of not charging for the NHS. And we also know that half a dozen members of his government, of his cabinet and, and broader government, have in the past called for the model of the NHS to be abandoned, including the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. So this is a long-standing position within the Conservative Party that they don't believe in the principle of a free NHS. And it, it from this poll, it seems like that's something that's filtered through to the public as well. You've written about this as well over at bylinetimes.com, haven't you? Pointing out that back in 2005, half a dozen members of the current government co-authored a book arguing that the NHS was no longer relevant in the 21st century. Yes, this was a pamphlet written, co-authored by Jeremy Hunt, also Michael Gove and, and several other senior members of Rishi Sunak's government, a number of former MPs as well. And this has long been a belief within the senior figures within the Conservative Party, in which the party was at, at some points quite open about. But when David Cameron became prime minister, that message was very much put on the back burner. Boris Johnson as well was very publicly opposed to that sort of agenda. I think it's has slightly more fertile ground within, certainly within Liz Truss, but also with Rishi Sunak as well. 
do I think that the government is going to come out tomorrow and say we're going to introduce charges and we're going to prioritise the NHS? No, but I do think the the ongoing crisis in the NHS does allow for the argument to continue to be made by supporters of the Conservative Party trying to to shift public opinion away from support for the NHS, NHS, particularly as they're refusing at the moment to to put in the the sorts of funds that are needed to dig us out of the crisis that the service currently faces. And there is a Brexit dimension to this as well, and it purely in terms of the UK's economic performance, which is worse than that of other EU countries, even if you take the pandemic into account. But you quote a great quote from the then Prime Minister, John Major, when he was opposed to the leaders of the Brexit campaign. He said, the NHS is about as safe with them as a pet hamster would be with a hungry python. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you can see uh, you can see it in the in the huge waiting times that people are facing, the the huge amount of times people are having to see a doctor or, or even to get an ambulance, that the service is being significantly run down. And I guess the fear is that over time, the worse it gets, the more people are going to opt out themselves from the NHS, the more support, support for the NHS is going to fall. And actually some recent polling, polling from last year, suggests that public satisfaction with the NHS is at a 25-year low. If that continues, then those demands for alternative funding models are only going to grow and become more mainstream. And it's already the case that papers like the Daily Mail, the Times and others are already floating this in their op-eds. How long is it going to be before senior conservative politicians start backing up that policy as well? So I think this is something that's definitely on the cards, if not in the in the short term, I think in the medium to long term, this is a way that potentially the model of the NHS that we currently know and most people support could eventually come to an end. Mm. Uh, throw into this mix as well, though, politically, you've got a government which is having to handle a wave of industrial unrest and having to come up with some kind of solution to halt the strikes. I mean, ultimately, the government is the funder or through the taxpayer, the government is the funder of the NHS. It's the funder of other public services like the railways, certainly the funder of last resort on the railways where we've got industrial action. So people will see these strikes and say, well, we expect the government ultimately to do something, even if each of these organisations has their own separate management. Yes, of course. And one thing they could do is to put more money into the NHS and to pay workers a living wage. At the moment, we have got a huge shortage of workers in the NHS and other parts of the public sector. Education as well is another key sector where they're struggling to find enough qualified staff willing to work for the amount of pay that the government is currently offering. Instead, what the government is planning to do is bring in new legislation, unveiled some of which was unveiled this week, which will impose what the government is calling minimum safety standards for strikes. That's somewhat spin that language. Actually, what it is, is effectively giving ministers the powers to all but outlaw strikes in certain sectors. So that the bill that was revealed this week, ministers would have the power in certain sectors, so health services, fire and rescue services, education, transport, nuclear installations, radioactive waste, border security. In those sectors, the ministers would be able to say, if strikes do go ahead, not outright banning strikes, but if strikes go ahead, there has to be a certain amount of staff still going to work. Unfortunately, the, the bill itself doesn't stipulate what that minimum service would. So it would then be 
entirely free for ministers to set after the bill was passed what those minimum service standards would be. So they could then effectively outlaw strikes altogether. I think the Conservatives would say that's an exaggeration. They point to examples in European countries where there are minimum service standards. Now, I know that that has been criticised because in countries such as France and Italy, where there are minimum service standards, usually these are agreed with the workers. They're not imposed. So I understand when you say that there's a little bit of spin there, but is there exaggeration there to saying that the government would really outlaw strikes? And it's already the case that unions agree minimum service standards when strikes take place. So it's not the case that the NHS, NHS completely shuts down. During the nursing strikes, those minimum standards have already been agreed. So what is the purpose of bringing in this new legislation if it's not to heavily restrict the ability of, of unions to, to go on strike? I don't think it, it would completely outlaw strikes, but it would essentially make them completely ineffective. And the problem with, with, with that is industrial action is essentially a safety valve. You can bring in new legislation, makes it very hard for people to go on strike or that makes strikes ineffective, completely ineffective. What will happen then is that the... Unions are no longer able to improve their terms and conditions, no longer able to convince the government to give them a a living wage. And all that does is you can force people to not go on strike, but you can't force people to stay in their jobs. And we've already got huge shortages in the NHS, huge shortages in education, and workers will vote with their feet and leave the public services. And that's going to cause huge damage to public services. And voters are not going to thank the government for that. I think overall, it's it's hugely self-defeating. In the United States, Heidi, there have been headlines because President Joe Biden has had classified, sensitive documents taken from his former office, dating back to the time, I think, when he was vice president. And of course, Donald Trump is jumping on this, isn't he? Drawing equivalence between the the documents that he had in his Mar-a-Lago home (laughs) and saying, well, look, if they're coming after me, when are they going to raid the many homes of Joe Biden? Well, first, I think it's very important to make sure that we explain to the listeners that that would be a false equivalency. I call this story, but his documents. The timing is curious and the Ku caucus in Congress can scream all they want, but the behavior of Joe Biden is how a president is supposed to act. He is cooperating, as opposed to Trump, who deals in obfuscation, denial, and even attempted bargaining uh, for information on Russia. He actually tried to cut a deal saying he'd give the authorities what they'd want if they gave him everything on Russia. So I think the way to sort of frame this is we know Trump had information about agents and foreign countries and nuclear secrets. And the question I pose is, who do you trust? Do you trust him? So I do see this as a false equivalency narrative. But, you know, Merrick Garland, our attorney general, did get up and do a press conference and, you know, make sure that there was a show of appointing a special counsel. And my fear is that we just gave a, you know, pack of rabid dogs some fresh meat. At the same time, though, I mean, notwithstanding Trump being Trump, the fact that classified documents were found in an office that the now president used when he was vice president, that is surely newsworthy and worthy of investigation. 
Oh, well, absolutely. And that is why Merrick Garland is appointing a special counsel. What I have issues with and where I feel it's apples and oranges is just the responses. They find these documents and Biden cooperates. And in Trump's case, it's just been, you know, the equivalent of just a, uh, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm just trying not to use the word shit show. I'll just answer your question with a yes, yes. And that is why Merrick Garland did appoint a special counsel. Tell me about the election of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker in Congress. Why was this so protracted? What does this tell Uh, us about the state of U.S. politics? I don't know if you can go back to the, you know, a couple months ago after the midterms when I was like less than enchanted and you'd expected me to be so enthusiastic. It's because I anticipated what Congress would look like under the GOP. And here we are. Kevin McCarthy basically cut a Faustian deal It's very important to note that he is the same congressman who famously said in 2016, I think there are two people Putin pays, Dana Rohrabacher and Trump. And then, of course, he was silenced. And that was a month before the Republican nomination. Just to let your listeners know, he's a Bakersfield Republican. He just spent a week being emasculated on national television humiliated, mocked with uh, their votes, the uh, quote unquote Freedom Caucus's votes. And he's revealed himself to be just another hollow man. It's very important to note, it wasn't too long ago when he decried Trump for the insurrection. And I hope people who are watching are seeing what is happening and recalling that this insurrection caucus, as they're known, or the coup caucus in Congress, made him capitulate to a whole bunch of things that are not good for our country. And just so so listeners in the UK understand, to be elected as Speaker, usually there is a a, a clear favourite. Usually the Speaker is elected at the first attempt. That's usual. It took 15 attempts to elect Kevin McCarthy. And the suggestion is that in order to secure the backing of what you call the coup caucus, the the right wing of the right wing, he's had to make various concessions. What will that mean in practice then in terms of legislation? Some people are calling this a second insurrection that they think could actually be worse than the first insurrection. You have you know, members on committees investigating the investigation of the insurrection that they were involved in. That's how serious this is. I listened to Kevin McCarthy's press conference yesterday. It was filled with what I call casual propaganda, proudly defunding the IRS, proudly talking about how they're attempting to interfere in the special counsel investigation into Donald Trump. They create an entire committee to investigate the weaponization of the government, which is also being colloquially called, you know, the Insurrection Protection Committee. I can't impart on you, Adrian, how difficult this is for us. You have the same group of people who are spouting anti-Ukraine propaganda, controlling legislation in the halls of our Congress. And it's worth noting that we have a new junior distraction in a new congressman who calls himself George Santos. And investigations have already revealed that he took money from one of Putin's closest allies through his cousin. He is now being investigated. And so 
what I feared, that clown show that I feared a few months ago, it's much worse and it's much more sinister. Talking of insurrections, there was a what appeared to be anyway, an attempted insurrection in Brazil. And we have connections there, which we've commented on on a podcast, on the Byline Times podcast, between Trump supporters, Trump allies in the United States and those seeking to overturn the election of Lula in Brazil and the restoration of Bolsonaro. These quite clear connections between the US and Brazil and Ironically, or perhaps more than coincidentally, that attempted coup in Brazil happened on January the 8th, just two days after the anniversary of the January the 6th insurrection in the US. It's so concerning. And our good friend Sharn Norris did a wonderful story showing all of the connections between the Bolsonaro camp and the Trump camp. And I just pulled an all-nighter with uh, one of our other writers, Matt Bernardini, kind of zooming out and showing some of the chaos events throughout the globe that appear to be active measures. It's not just U.S. and Brazil. There are these events that are occurring throughout the world that are very, very worrisome for the future of liberal democracies. Oh, come on now, Heidi, you're teasing us. Go on, give us a few examples of what you mean. We kind of took a look and found a lot of the Russian links between things like, let's just say, Burkina Faso has a coup and young people are waving Russian flags and Trump ally Prigozhin is out there praising these young people. You have Germany's attempting to storm the Reichstag in 2021 based on anti-vax restrictions and COVID restrictions. And of course, we can link that back to Russian COVID disinformation. In Canada, you have the Ottawa truckers disruption, uh, known as the Freedom Convoy, also linked to this anti-vax disinformation. Study after study shows that these were fueled by disinformation campaigns and you know, troll campaigns linked back to Russia. In France in 2018, you have the Yellow Vest. Who is aiding this narrative? why it's Russian trolls again, and on and on and on. So the reason I felt it was very important that we actually took a zoom out and looked at all of this stuff is because so much is coming at us so fast. It's called the fog of unknowability. And what Bannon has referred to, Steve Bannon, a Trump ally, has referred to as flooding the zone with shit. I apologize for using that word. But what happens is we have this inability to remember what happened a year ago or the year before that or six months ago. And I think it's incredibly important we press pause when these events happen and take a moment to zoom out and see, is there a bigger play here? Is there a chaos and destabilization effort? And where can that be linked to? And so that's what I spent my last two days doing is finding finding all the links and asking people to take a longer look. It's worth noting, I interviewed a uh, Russia analyst, Keir Giles, who just wrote a book called Russia's War on Everybody. And it's worth noting that this dystopia does not have to be ongoing, because as soon as the leadership of a country admits publicly that they are under attack by Russia, 
He said it triggers a whole load of other processes, which makes defending ourselves against their active measures, against the provocations, much easier. It gets over that initial mindset of denial that it's not happening here, is what he says. So yeah, that's how I spent my... uh, (laughs) That's why I'm sleepy, Adrian. (laughs) And talking of anti-vax sentiment, Adam, we've had the Conservative MP... Andrew Bridgen having the whip yes. removed. That means that in the House of Commons, he's no longer regarded as a Conservative MP. He does continue as an MP, though, because he said that the COVID vaccination programme was the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Yes, I mean, incredibly offensive and, of course, entirely wrong comments from, from Andrew Bridgen, who didn't have a particularly good week this week. I mean, it came just just days after he was suspended from the House of Commons, after having been found to, to have breached lobbying rules. Now he's he's been suspended from the House of Commons for five days. He's also been, he's lost the whip from the Conservative Party for those grossly offensive comments. I suspect there aren't many of his colleagues are who are terribly upset about that. He's not a hugely popular figure in Westminster. It's a bit of a open secret, actually, that he's a notorious kind of rent-a-quote and publicity seeker if you've ever read sort of vicious briefings against conservative mps and conservative leaders very often they come from andrew bridgen and others like him he's well known for that and those comments that he made were grossly offensive and arguably anti-semitic as well so i don't think he had many friends in the party i don't think it was a very tough decision for the conservative party leadership to, to say that he should he should quit but of course it is hugely embarrassing for the Conservative Party and for the and for the government that he should he should have made those comments publicly. He has apologized for the Holocaust reference, insisted that he's not anti-Semitic, but he said he will continue highlighting important questions surrounding mRNA vaccines. And I think most intelligent people would recognize that it's entirely reasonable to ask intelligent questions yes. about vaccinations at the same time as acknowledging the great benefit that they have been, the boon they have been to millions of people. But the terms in which he described them are clearly beyond the bounds for any mainstream political party, I'd say. Yeah, intelligent questions, as you say, are good and it's good to be sceptical. And they're actually there is a sort of constituency within the Conservative Party who does have doubts about the vaccine and about the lockdowns and and all the rest of it. But what he was saying was clearly well beyond the bounds, not only of what is uh, sensible and within the terms of public debate, but also entirely wrong. You know, the latest figures suggest that vaccines are more than 90% effective at preventing death. So these are not sort of mass killing machines that people have been putting into themselves. These have saved a lot of lives. And also it is arguably that one of the biggest success stories of the Conservative government, that they were able to roll out these vaccines. And UK was, I believe, the the first major country to roll out a vaccine. I believe that's right. Certainly one of the first. And for a Conservative MP to be undermining that record, I think was in- incredibly stupid, as, as well as being grossly offensive. Adam, thank you. Heidi, thank you. My name is Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Week in Politics on the Byline Times podcast. Just a reminder, by the way, that we are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper. We don't have 
millionaire or even billionaire backers. There's no corporate interest behind what we do. We just want to highlight corruption, hold power to account in a non-partisan way. So if you think that's a good thing to support, then take out a subscription to Byline Times. You get more details on how to subscribe at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well to check out bylinesupplement.com. So many ways in which you can enjoy our wonderful journalism. We'll see you again very soon. But for now, bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers.